All right, it's nine minutes to 11 a.m. on the West Coast. I'm in Santa Monica, and I'm speaking to somebody in the northern middle part of America in a place that is very familiar to me, St. Louis Park, Minnesota, the land of my birth. And I'm speaking today with a musician whom I love. I love his songs. I love his attitude towards life and music and creativity. Um, Thank you. I, <laughs> right. You're not even, you're supposed to be behind the velvet curtain. At oh, that's time. right. Until I announce you, but you know, yeah. that it's you're, you're wearing a lav mic and they're picking up everything you're saying. Yeah. The person that I'm talking to, his name is Dan Israel. And uh, we're going to be talking today about his music, about his new record, about uh, the creative process in general, and about, you know, what draws him to continuously create. And he, he puts out a lot of material. He's what I would call the real deal, um, <laughs> not a dilettante. He's really in it. So let's just start in, Dan. I just was wondering, um, as a a series of very odd questions. I hope they're yeah. odd. <laughs> i got to interrupt you real quick because I, I hate when I don't know a meaning of dilettante would be like a lazy person or something. No, just like a you know, hobbyist. Half half. Okay, okay. Kind of like okay. a dabbler, I think. Yeah, I didn't want to pretend I knew. I've heard the oh, word, yeah, but that's I. Good. That's good. Yeah, that's, there yeah. you are. You're okay. alert to, to new things. That's, that's why it's so good. So when you were a kid, in St. Louis uh-huh. Park, and you know, just for the listeners, uh, we Dan and I grew up in the same suburb, and this suburb was made very famous by the Cohen brothers. There's so many people that came from there. Thomas mm-hmm. Friedman from the New York Times, Al Franken, Senator mm-hmm. Al Franken, been in the news a little lately, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, just so many people. And the Cohen brothers had this great you know, somewhat recent movie about within the last five or so years called A Serious Man, which literally was a depiction of our neighborhood and what it was like growing up, particularly growing up Jewish in St. Louis Park, as Dan and I did. So, Dan, when you were nine years old, yeah, what was what was going on in your life? What was your worldview? It's a really good question because it's kind of the theme of what we're trying to do for the album cover for this album because I was kind of reckoning back to that era because that was when I first got into music, you know, like really into music. And, and, uh, we were sort of trying to come up with a visual depiction of that. But anyway, one aspect of my life then was I would listen to American top 40 on KDWB AM with Casey Kasem. And, you know, the countdown every Sunday night was a big, that was a big part of my life, strangely enough. Um, what were some of the I, songs that you loved from that? It was era? a big Bee Gees era, you know, and but it was, but New Wave, it was disco and New Wave and country crossover all at once. You know, mm-hmm. so you'd have uh, Queen of Hearts, Juice Newton, and then you'd have, you know, your Saturday Night Fever songs, and you'd have your... Your, you know, Cars and Blondie and Devo kind of coming along, and it was it was like new music was really interesting then. I think, right? I mean, it was cheesy. It was maybe a little cheesy, but it was interesting. When you got your flock of seagulls and Juice Newton coming at you at the same time, 
Yeah. And then there's always a little bit of Marvin Gaye getting mm-hmm. very little time. It's interesting how black music was always relegated to R&B stations. Isn't that strange? And couldn't really, you know, once in a while, I mean, of course, Earth, Wind, and Fire would pop right. in as a pop band. It was, there was, a, you know, there were certainly a few. Yeah. But it was always like KUXL was the left of the dial black station. And that's where if you wanted to hear music that was funky and alive, you had yeah. to go to this strange place. And now music is predominantly black music. It's not like an interesting form that's, you know, played every so often while the Eagles are going off all the time. <laughs> right, it's become right. the predominant American form. What was your connection to, I mean, R&B music growing up? Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I I remember reading that, like, Super Freak was, like, a huge R&B hit before it ever hit the wider white community. Like, you know, every, you know, so so, there were songs like that that would cross over, you know, eventually. Um, uh, I don't know when I first heard of Prince. That was probably... I probably didn't really, even though I was in the same hometown, I don't think I really heard of them until probably until a little before 1999 came out or something like that. Wow, wow. Yeah, I wasn't really aware. I was so young. I mean, I probably read John Breen's columns, and, like, he would talk about people who I didn't know who they were. So, John Breen Breen is the uh, local Minneapolis really excellent music critic. And we should, I, I have to pause here and say, um, you know, people, you know, often dispute what music critics uh, would say and what they would uh, favor and, and put into disfavor. But the fact right. that there are so few of them is a reflection on, you know, how diminished the music business is in a certain way, that they can't sustain professional journalists devoted to to music and it's well we just great devalued law. we've devalued all these things we've devalued music we've devalued writing about music we've devalued you know art in general i don't know what we've we've increased the value of things that seem to have almost no meaning to me whatsoever but so this maybe is, this, this is a good point, uh, but. this is a good point of discussion so mm-hmm. I, I, I like to jump in and 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 connect to what you're saying mm-hmm. is when you mention value, what, mm-hmm. what do you bring to that? What comes to mind? It's just, it's about what's important and what, what matters, what, what we as a society deem to matter. And then there's a lot of things that we say, we, we, we proclaim, we pontificate that they matter, but we don't, we're doing lip service. We don't really put our money where our mouth is. But so most people, if you stop them, they would say, stop them on the street. Do you say, do you value art and music? Oh, sure I do. You know, but what, but, but what are they actually doing to, to support those things? And are those, if you want to, I don't know how far, but I happen to think that art and music and things of beauty are, like weapons against violence and the the degradation of our society so that I maybe think they're more important than most people 
think they are, or I mean, well, you may agree. Uh, yeah, but, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, you know, just as, <clears throat> for example, elementary school teachers are so important, so unbelievably mm-hmm. important, and and in a monetary sense, they're undervalued. And, right. and I'm thinking that music and art have, and particularly, let's just focus on music yes. for a second. It yes. has undergone, and not to any fault of, you know, societal fault or uh, a, a change in people's connection and love and even, dare I say, use the word value, value of music, but it's right. on a technological change where the delivery system of music has reduced what was I used to call the thingitude, which is I vinyl, yeah. let's say, or yeah. CDs or something that you could hold in your hand. When those things, those those manifestable, you know, visceral things are reduced to ones and zeros, they become somewhat invisible. In this, in the case of music, they're reverting back to their original invisibility. They become yeah. free for everyone. So right. the the change has been not so much that people don't love and connect, perhaps even more to music, mm-hmm. but because it's not necessary to pay to expend their lucre on behalf of music, they mm-hmm. don't, and that. Well, and- troubling and creates problems for music makers, but it it didn't change people's conception about the value of music, in my opinion. Does that I, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, that it didn't, people still, yeah, that's true. And now the pro- part of the problem is that you get these binary perceptions out there of like, people will think, oh, that's just terrible. Don Henley won't be able to buy another mansion. You know, like the, as if, the, or something like that, you know, that they they kind of look at it like, oh, how terrible that rock stars can't make as many millions, overlooking the fact that most people who make music are not rock stars or are not buying another mansion or, you know, that it's just, a, a, you know, we're talking about some kind of economic viability at all here. For, right, right. For, and, and. So it's a little bit unfortunate that sometimes it gets skewed, that the argument gets skewed, like, oh, I'm supposed to feel sorry for rich rock stars or whatever. Well, but, I look at it through a little different prism. I mm-hmm. look at it as maybe has a little gentler touch than, mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. You know, let's say, this is a crazy metaphor, but let's just say on your lawn we're growing mm-hmm. all these amazing small, super ripe, super sweet strawberries that just were growing mm-hmm. on your lawn. Mm-hmm. And then in the morning, you pick them and you put them in your cereal and you ate them. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not disparaging any strawberry growers of any size, <laughs> but the strawberries are just on your lawn. It's It's impossible now to protect them and to say you should pay for them. It's it's impossible to make a person when the strawberries are arrayed out in front of them and they're hungry and there's mm-hmm. no policing of it. It's no longer pirating music. Nobody uses that expression. No, nobody says It's interesting that you note that. Nobody says that anymore. Not really, not in terms of 
I mean, maybe if you were to go press your own copies of something. But, yeah, what we used to call pirating is just what people do now. They listen to music for free. And, I, and I'm thinking that well, taking the, maybe the conversation into another direction – Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done my share of mourning about it and protesting, mm-hmm. and now it's sort of like the guy who raised horses for transportation purposes is <laughs> moaning the Model T's. I mean, there, it's, it's the paradigm has shifted. It's never going to return. There's not going to be some sensational remuneration coming to musicians as it once. I agree. It'll be some something that we literally can't conceive of now. So let's talk about the beauty of this time, where you yes. can make records, beautiful records, inexpensively, yes. and disseminate them to the world with a touch of a button. Well, I'll tell you, just from the recent experience of the record I made, which, you know, mirrors a bit some previous records, but just in, in this specific way that we did it, you know, I, I just from to, to kind of condense it time-lapse-wise here, but, you know, I walk around, I, I think of song ideas, I, I put them on a little tape, digital tape recorder, I jot down notes, you know, it's all just like grains of things, everything seems very just pieces of things and then you know eventually i get them into sort of more like song form and oh this one goes with this and then and then uh, with this record and the last couple records i end up going up north to where my mom is from to get to that point where then you have this this thing that was you know this little grain of an idea a few weeks ago uh, uh, something you sung into a tape recorder and then now you have this sort of grand production a little bit with the with these layered guitars and it just it like i just want to listen back to it a lot and hear what so, the result so what was. you're saying is as i'm hearing you and i certainly can relate to what you're saying um is is there's a tremendous joy from taking some sort of you know latent spark of an idea yeah, nugget. And 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 watching it m- manifest itself, watching it grow and develop, and sometimes it's even more beautiful in concert collaboration with other people. And then it's it becomes when an idea becomes manifest in reality. Yeah, there's a great joy. What what <laughs> What do you think that could be a metaphor for? I mean, why does it bring us such exquisite joy? Do you see? Oh, it's a metaphor for like creating human life or something, or for maybe as a parent, it's a metaphor for birthing and raising. Or I don't. I mean, maybe that they, that one gets used a little too often. So maybe, but it's a metaphor for creation in general, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, for the act of creation, which if we want to look at it in a spiritual sense, somehow we all got here through an act of creation or a, or, a, or however you want to believe that occurred. But Yeah, I mean, I depending think, on your perspective, you know, I, I, I have a pretty religious, you could say, bent. And mm-hmm. somehow, you know, whatever your view is on this thing, this idea of something that had it was not tangible there was no 
you know, material aspect to it. It's just an idea and where they were in the land of souls or electricity. And, and all of a sudden it's coming through this pinhole and taking shape in the real world. It's kind of, it's just imitative of larger aspects of creativity and to be bound up in, in not imitating it in this sort of derisive sense, but echoing it. And yeah. Yeah. Maybe the act of, of, Maybe the act of creating these things, it's, there's something primordial in us that seeks to, you know, recreate that whole process. And I was, I was going to say another thing that happens, I've been reading a book about coincidences, and I've just always been fascinated with coincidences. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I'm sure you know, as a songwriter, as a creator, you always have to be alert to those possibilities of this fitting into this or this somehow sparking this or but that happens a lot for me where that happens sometimes is with lyrics because lyrics are a are a b-i-t-c-h sometimes you know Hmm. lyrics lyrics can really torment if i get to uh they have to sort of flow a little bit and when they flow then sometimes you stumble on something that seems like the perfect accident the perfect yeah that's a really that's another like exquisite feeling where you lose something of yourself and and then you somehow put a toe into this deep well of as you mentioned coincidences or the unity of seemingly disparate ideas and concepts and things once they start coming together in these surprising ways it's like oh my god you know this yeah it's almost it 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 feels like magic. Let, it let feels me ask spooky. You it's the Jungian, the collective uh, unconscious, or something, or I don't know what the explanation is. That's what he went with. Was there was something that we all tap into yeah, that I we mean, all. It, it feels like there. It feels like unity, and certainly yes. when yes. when music is playing, let's say in a room yes. that's live show. I mean, it's it's almost as though it's creating a body of water in oh, which we are all swimming at once. And, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. assuming you love what's happening in the room, then it's mm-hmm. really inside a different experience. It's very mm-hmm. different from the the one you had when you were just walking down the street ready to get into the venue. Right. I just heard Mike Campbell from – the Heartbreakers talking, maybe because of Teddy's passing, I've been listening a lot, but he said something on their last tour, there was a couple, some times where it felt like everything just took, like, you know, everything clicked in a way that, you know, even though they've been playing together 40 years or whatever, that, that they had these moments still where, like, everything seemed almost like lift off the ground or, you know, everything was almost happening without with no effort or you know you, people you i'm sure experience some of these epiphany moments with music where it seems like something is transformative is happening in that moment that you can't even really describe to anybody well it's um, like uh i think a lot of you know when people collaborate whether it's you know a business or certainly in sports teams or in a marriage or mm-hmm. you know it's not always clicking but when it does it's a degree Mm -hmm. of intimacy you know take rock music for example i mean i remember when i used to 
take my amplifier and my guitar. I was in sixth grade. I think Andy Cannon, mm-hmm. my longtime mm-hmm. drummer and great friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would bring it to Love his Andy. house. You know, we were kids, mm-hmm. and and when we started to play together, the for the first time, I remember it. The moment is just seared in my mind. And uh, on stairs in his, you know, his parents' basement, and I could hardly play. He was he was a lot more advanced on drums than I was on guitar. But yeah. when we played, it was it was so intimate as to be embarrassing. It was almost <laughs> as though we were having some kind of like conjugal relations, you know. And it, it does. It is very intimate sometimes. But that's a that is the beauty of the unifying principle. And yeah. we're, you know, this exists in many certain art forms and businesses yeah. and where there's collaboration and one loses a sense of oneself and merges with this larger thing. And that is the reason that so many of us continue, even as you mentioned in the beginning of our talk with the, the uh, drop in sort of monetary valuation, Mm -hmm. you would pay amazing amounts of money to have this experience. And it it can happen with the other musicians. It can happen with the audience. Yeah. And the reward that we go through now and just circling back to that, that discussion mm -hmm. about how music has lost its monetary value. In some sense, that's been a purifying thing. Because we're back you're right. to how it was when we were 12 and 15 years old, you know, I, where the guitar never represented a giant payday. We didn't right. know from that. If that was our gig, we would have been hedge fund kids. We would have gone right. to MBAs. That was never on right. our minds. Right, right. Let, let me ask you something. You, you've written a lot of music, a lot of songs, made a lot of records, mm-hmm. done a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. And this is an annoying question, so I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, prepare you. Sure. Um, and you don't have to give me the right answer, but just give me the first few things that come to your mind. And, of course, you could say, why would I tell you this? Because I write songs instead, but I, I get that. But what what mm-hmm. is it you're trying to say? What is your unique perspective? What makes your music special? I think I'm... Well, I think my whole life I've been wanting people to think I'm special, you know, and and music seemed to be a way to to show people that that hey, look at me, I I kind of have something here. Like, um, what is it? What is it? You know that's special. Why Why have you walked around the world? You certainly um, have been had exchanges with other people. What makes you think you're special? And I don't want well, deriding you for that. Feeling. Well, I mean, we do tend to we do we do. It is a little humbling when when you like just realize how many people are trying to do the exact same thing you're doing. Yeah, because they all because they all think they're special too. <laughs> but what and they probably are. But what and, and, what do you think? makes you special what okay well a couple of things your worldview or your special approach to music i think a couple things i think there's an aspect of heritage in my outlook like um i had some and this more gets a little i don't want to get too long-winded about it but 
there were some things in my family, my my mainly like my grandparents and great grandparents experienced some things that were extremely difficult or frustrating, and some of their relatives had far worse things happen in Europe if for staying in Europe. But um, there seems to be like a, some sense of me wanting to get some vindication for. I know that doesn't sound like the the best motive necessarily for a person, but like I feel like the you know uh, sometimes maybe it's almost like a little bit of a delusion of grandeur. Like I have to save the family name. My ancestors were wronged, but um, but there is a little of that, and and in a larger cultural sense, being Jewish and and feeling that our people were wronged, that 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 they're. There is, I don't know, this seems like a strange uh, direction to go in to answer your question about why I make music. It might be more about why I kind of want to make an impact in the world or something like that. As to well, music, let, let me, now, now that we're getting deep into yeah, it, because I, yeah. I, I warned you it was an odd question. Yeah. What you're yeah. answering me, and it's a good answer, but it's a little different. It's answering the question about what compels you. Yeah. Good answer. But I want to not... know what makes what you are compelled to do special. Um, I mean, I believe it is, and I could I could mm-hmm. talk about it myself, but I mm-hmm. you know I, I I like to Okay, I'll tell you. I I'll tell you one thing. And it's hard to articulate. You may not be um, able to. It's a it's well, a main question, but it No, it's not. It's not it's a good question and it's not one I ask myself very often. But here's one thing I would say. I think that um, I approach music with a combination of simplicity and complexity that is something I'm searching for in life. Like I'm Hmm. trying to find – like I happen to believe that the answer can't be that complex because that just wouldn't be fair somehow, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that it can't be that simple either, or everyone would have it right away. And so what I'm trying, music's like a puzzle that I'm trying to solve. And I use music as the means of solving the puzzle because it's something I'm, I'm pretty good at creating, you know, writing a song, but within that context of trying to write a song or create music, I think that I'm trying to solve this bigger puzzle, which is what's it all about? And is it simple or is it complex? Mm -hmm. Is it happy or is it sad? Like I'm trying to answer the fundamental question is, uh, should we be optimistic or pessimistic? Like if you listen to my lyrics, people sometimes are like, um, boy, that song sounded really happy, but the lyrics were really a bummer. And I'm like, yeah, because Within the writing of the song, I alternated between being uh, optimistic and pessimistic. I mean, I can't even sustain enough optimism for an entirely happy song, but <laughs> nor, can, nor can I sustain enough pessimism for an entirely miserable song. Sad one. Um, and so I, I kind of live in a middle ground that I'm trying to chart in my life. It sounds boring. Like people think moderation or or finding the middle ground is kind of frowned upon these days. Like everybody wants you to be. Everyone wants to be extreme. Oh, are you this or are you this? Right. You know, binary polarity. All the work exists in the middle. It's a difficulty, Uh, and that's that's a challenge of of fusing these two 
halves, as you're calling simplicity and complexity. Let me let me ask them a, an aspect of the question that may be easier to answer. Sure. Somebody comes to a Dan Israel concert. What that would be novel. Would you like them to walk away with? Um. Well, first of all, I want. I'd rather they felt better about themselves than before they went there. That's the. I mean, plenty right there. You know, and like I, I, I'd love to think that I could inspire a kid who was like a younger version of me to want to even though maybe they look up and see I'm only playing to not some huge arena, but they might still think it looks pretty cool that what I'm doing at age 46, I'm still like playing my own songs to people, you know, winning over new fans one by one. Maybe they would think that's cool and, and, and they'd be inspired and it wouldn't be a big bummer to them to see what well, you know, you, you just said, I, I didn't, commented on it i didn't comment on it but you said a, a slightly self-deprecating thing which was that you know people come into your concert and you just flippantly said you know that would be novel how how much a struggle do you uh does it present to wrestle with quality versus quantity that if your numbers aren't Hi. How does that make you feel? And what what do you do to combat against this? Because it's a pretty yeah. common thing for everybody. oh oh, it's a big yeah. And it depends on where you are. It depends what the gig is. You know, it depends on the weather. Is all these things. You know, but uh, the one thing I mean, I've gone through all kinds of uh, stages with that whole issue of you know why what is it about like am I not gimmicky enough I for years I just thought I wasn't gimmicky enough I I looked around at everybody who seemed to you know come from out of nowhere and jump right to the top of the the heap and they seem they always seem to have a, a shtick and I didn't seem to have a shtick so I thought maybe that was and and then then sometimes I just thought it doesn't really matter I've got this nice core of people and that can feel like a nice truth to tell yourself and 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 sometimes that nice core really shows up to your show or your big CD release show but um here's the only thing that really hurt me is when I and I should but I I heard a booking person in town or like second hand I heard somehow somebody talking about me second hand saying you know that guy never nobody ever comes to that guy's show <laughs> <laughs> and, and and first of all, it's not really true. I mean, and, and it's less true all the time. Like like I would like to say that it's it's less true than it was ten years ago. Even you know, like there seemed to be a little bit more of a dedicated following. But just somehow, I don't know. It's it's almost like a junior high, high school kind of thing when you hear something said about you secondhand that it can sting a lot more. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's just stung with me. And I, yeah. I wanted to argue with them, but they didn't even know I was supposed to have known that, 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 you know, they, they said it. So how do you, what takes you out of that funk? You know, well, everybody hears that at every level, everyone's going to feel some disparagement at some yeah. point. How, how do you extricate yourself from that? Well, if, if we want to talk about like what constitutes success in music, there are so many different things that can constitute some measure of success. Draw is like just one of so many. And to some people, it's the be all and end all. Well, it's probably never going to be for me, but that's because I just, it just 
isn't. But um, like, how do I counteract it? Well, like, like sometimes uh, I love the random chance encounter things that happen where like somebody tells a family member or a friend that they can't believe that they, they're my relative or my friend because they're such a big fan of mine. You know, like these things that you get these more random things that come in that give you some sense that the music's actually getting out there and affecting people. And it doesn't have to do with a big, one big crowded room. It has to do more sometimes with somebody who's just totally peripheral that you didn't even know about that somehow is your, is this huge fan of yours that, you know, owns all your albums. Somebody says, I had one person a few years ago say that one, my, my album, Dan, who, which was like an acoustic album. And I didn't even really know her at the time, but she told me that it was like pivotal in kind of uh, a summer in which she was like extremely depressed. And it, it kind of, it she, goes a long way, doesn't it? She said it saved her life, which I don't know if, but, but then not that serious. How can that not like carry more weight than whether you got thirty or fifty people or uh, five hundred people? You know, I mean, well, that here's seems what like I a, think about that seems like a bigger deal, right? Than than how many people bought beer at the show. If you could somehow reflect, this is, this is me giving unasked for advice, but sure, you know, the perception that you have and you're generally self-deprecating and so are the mm-hmm. songs which is kind mm-hmm. of a it's good it's a it's endearing quality mm-hmm. it certainly is but at the same time as you said you're juxtaposing and constantly analyzing these opposites mm-hmm. at the same time for listeners who have not yet heard dan israel he has what so many people don't have a body of highly acclaimed, amazing work. And to mm-hmm. get such a thing means that you have to recreate yourself. You have to ride out the vicissitudes with resilience and mm-hmm. understand for the listeners, Dan is, you know, he's really self-deprecating and mm-hmm. he really is conscious and very transparently talking about this stuff that everybody feels. And yeah. yet you are such a survivor because mm-hmm. you constantly are creating. You're mm-hmm. fighting back these forces and all the fears that I'm not this and I'm not that. And yet at the end of the day, you're the one who's putting out records and doing shows and writing songs and fully engrossed. And to me, that's what your music stands for. It's harder for you to answer the question. Mm-hmm. But you're going out in the world, you know, uh, you're just, you look like a normal guy. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't look like a typical rock star. Mm-hmm. And your whole thing is about a normal guy. Mm-hmm. And this normal guy encounters the joys and the beauty and the fear and the the degradation and the exaltation and the humiliation. And he constantly moves forward. So when I come to a Dan Israel show and I listen to a Dan Israel record, Mm -hmm. I too have a sense that I can move forward Mm -hmm. and you 
in the same way that Springsteen does this, and obviously different mm-hmm. approach, and but the same effect. It's like the every man that keeps moving and, mm-hmm. and lights up the world as he goes. So mm-hmm. wrapping up here, I just want to say mm-hmm. it's a pleasure Thank to you. talk to you. We've had, we never had this kind of discussion. No, it's wonderful. Uh, I mean, we need to, we need to do it again. Yeah, uh, and, podcast and hoping, or no podcast. Uh, some people that are not familiar with your work will, uh, you know, you just go Dan Israel and you'll get all sorts of stuff coming out. And yeah. I'll, you know, I'll put some yeah. websites or something, but sure. Stuff. And, and, you know, see what you think and see where mm-hmm. it carries you. Cause it, it takes you on a, a different kind of trip. You'll recognize certainly some of the influences. It's not like you're reinventing the wheel. No. But you do have a certain perspective and color that's absolutely unique, and that's your own stamp. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me and my guest, Dan Israel, on the Big News podcast, and hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Big- Thanks, Peter and Thanks, Dan. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.